good evening. Um, uh, been a couple weeks, gave us a little bit of gap here, but tonight we're going to finish the book of Ruth. Uh, hope it's been helpful to you, uh, spiritually edifying, and um, and I know that it's been a blessing to me as well to, to learn and think about how the Bible, uh, the story of the Bible fits together, and especially this beautiful uh, story here in the book of uh, Ruth. So tonight we're going to talk about Redeemed Act 4, When the Plan Unfolds. When the Plan Unfolds. Let's, let's pray together. Father, thank you for this privilege of opening your scripture. I pray that you would help us now, Father, see, believe, trust, and obey all that you have written. I pray, Lord, that you would grant us a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of you, that we would uh, see, God, the beauty of the story that you have written, uh, including the life of a young woman named Ruth and your plan uh, through her and through Boaz to to bring about your your great plan, God, of redemption. And help us, God, to see how just like Ruth and Boaz, Lord, our lives are part of your plan. Lord, and the, the day-to-day happenings and goings-on and our obedience and acts of love and righteousness towards others, Lord, are not insignificant. They're working, God, your great plan of redemption of the whole world. And so use us, God. To that end, it will give you the praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, if you have a Bible, you can turn to Ruth chapter 4. Ruth chapter 4. And uh, the story of Ruth uh, is fascinating and uh, just helpful and, and beautiful. Uh, and like lots of good stories, uh, you don't quite see exactly the whole scope of where the author's trying to go till the very end. And it, it reminded me of um, of a good mystery novel or good mystery shows. I remember when I was a kid growing up, some of this, this may surprise you, but I remember watching Murder, She Wrote reruns. And, um, and uh, you know, you know how, you know how a good mystery goes, right? It's not till the very end that all the little details that that were in the story, they show how they all fit together to kind of uh, to to figure out the uh, the culprit. And in this story of of Ruth, we see we don't really see till the very end. And I've been hitting it, hinting at it all along about where the where the what the author's doing, what he's trying to tell us in this uh, story. And uh, and so that's what I want to talk about this evening when we. Talk about redeemed, the story of Ruth, Act chapter 4, when the plan unfolds. And so now, if you're able and willing, I invite you to stand in honor of the reading of God's word. We're going to read Acts chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. It says, Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there, and behold, the Redeemer, of whom Boaz had spoken, came by. And so Boaz said, Turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down, and he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the Redeemer, 
Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now, this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other, and this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilion and Malon. Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephratha and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife, and he, and he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age, for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Amenadab. Amenadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz, Boaz fathered Obed, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. The word of God. You may be seated. So as we conclude this story, I want to talk about um, a number of redeemers that we have seen in this story. First, we're going to see a redeeming man, a redeeming man. Number two is we're going to see a redeeming mother and son. And number three, we're going to see a redeeming king. A redeeming king. So a redeeming man, a redeeming mother and son, and a redeeming king. So first, we're going to see a redeeming man. And so you'll note that, just for my points here, that I really believe that there's lots of redeemers in this story. And really, that's the beauty of it. Uh, because there are multiple redeemers in interweaving, if you will, layers of redemption. And this, I believe, is a pointer to the reality that every aspect of our life is interconnected. And, our, and, and there, we have entire webs of interconnected relationships. And, and, and every aspect of these, every aspect of our lives, every aspect of the interconnected web of our relationships is 
uh, corrupted by sin, tainted, wounded by sin and its effects. And so redemption then must be comprehensive in its renewal and its healing as well, right? So that means that we need, we need redemption of, of, of a comprehensive sort. Not just, we don't need just redemption from our personal sin, but our society needs redemption. The created order itself needs redemption. The whole world needs redemption. And so redemption then is just is, is a complex reality, and it must be comprehensive uh, for it to be uh, complete. And so the first aspect of this redemption in this story we see uh, is through a redeeming man. And so last time, if you remember, uh, Naomi and Ruth took a risk of love. They, they broke social custom of the day. Uh, at great risk, really, to seek redemption from Boaz. You know, remember, uh, they came up with the plan, and then Ruth would kind of uh, approach him at night and uh, lay at his feet and uncover his uh, legs. And uh, basically, it's a, a proposal that she was coming to him for, uh, uh, for redemption. And uh, there was that risk there. How would Boaz receive it? How would he respond? How would this righteous man respond to this very forward act by this woman? And yet what we see is that Boaz immediately sees what they're trying to do. And, and his heart is moved with compassion and, even, uh, um, uh, and, and, and really even humbled by the fact that she would approach him with this uh, when she could have gone to a young man for something uh, similar. And so... So Boaz, in that moment, in his heart, in his righteousness, commits to, to not rest until redemption is accomplished. But as we saw last time, and it kind of left us hanging there, is that Boaz mentions to Ruth that there was a nearer redeemer than he, a nearer relative who had the first right of redemption. And so the proper thing to, be, would, uh, to do would be to offer him the rights of redemption first. And so... This, our story that we read uh, just now picks up basically the very next morning. So when they woke up that morning, Boaz goes straight to the city gates to make sure that redemption happens. And it says that Boaz goes and he sits down at the gate. And while this may seem strange to us, uh, in the ancient Near East, the city gates is where the official business of the town took place. And if you think about it, it really makes sense because that's where everybody would pass They'd have to pass through the gates, uh, going from their their homes to their uh, to their farmland or their or their uh, work or fishing or, or whatever they would do. Okay, so uh, and in addition to that, it's where it'd be the place where the, since there would be lots of passers by, it would be the place where um, you know all the all the lines of uh, information would travel by the city gates, and it'd be and it'd be uh, the best place to find witnesses to. Um, uh, to be witnesses to any transaction that would take place, and this was common. And even in the Bible, we have the example of Genesis 23, when Abraham's wife Sarah died. It says that he went to the gate of the of the of his ten uh, of the village there, and um and and bought the 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 parcel of land that he was going to bury their dead in, and that there was all these witnesses present. And so um, it makes perfect sense because. You know, I mean, you got to think about it. So it's an agrarian type society. 
you you know the average if there's a walled city around you're going to want to live in it to kind of protect yourself from like raiders and things so they'd live in the walled city but then everyone had to go out through the gate to their land and I mean, in, in a small village-type place, right, if you have 10 people to sit down and witness the— I mean, in Eastman, Georgia, if 10 people witness something, everyone's going to know it by the end of the day, okay? So just imagine a tiny little village-walled town, okay, where you have 10 witnesses to something that takes place. Everybody's going to know about it, so it, it, make, it makes it binding <laughs> because everyone's going to know about it, and everyone's going to know that it happened and what was agreed to, okay? So— Boaz goes, he knows that this is what, what he's got to do. He goes to the gate, and he sits down, and he's going to wait till he, he finds this uh, man. And then the text actually says there, uh, it says, um, Behold, right there in verse 1, Behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. And so this behold has the same effect that we talked about earlier about Ruth's chance chancing upon the field of Boaz. You know, it's the, it's the author's way of saying, oh, and it just so happened that the Redeemer came by. But of course, what the narrator is saying is, no, Boaz sat at that gate and God made sure that man came by. That's what he's saying. He's saying God's in control of this situation. Boaz sat down and God made sure that that Redeemer came by. It's appointed to God's sovereignty in working out, in working out this story of redemption. Uh, for God... Uh, uh, God is the, was the, is the primary actor in this story and the primary redeemer, really, which we'll talk about later. But the most striking part of this story, I think, is how the redeemer is referred to in the story. Um, Boaz, it says uh, in verse uh, 1 there, it says, uh, Boaz said, turn aside, friend, and sit down here. Uh, the, the KJV, I think, says, uh, ho, such a one. <laughs> We don't talk like that. It sounds like uh, Santa Claus. Oh, such a one. Turn aside here. We don't talk like that anymore. But it's act- that's, actually a, that's actually a good translation. S- such a one. The, the Hebrew is a funny little pair of words uh, that, could, that could, you could actually probably translate it, Mr. So-and-so. Hey, Mr. So-and-so, sit down here. And it, so it's, it's kind of funny that the that the, the one writing this story decides to put it that way. I mean, he, di- he didn't have to do that. But he, it's almost like he's, in, you know, he's, he, he's naming a bunch of people in this story. So it's not like he's shy to name names, but it's almost as if he's intentionally, and I think he is, he's intentionally not naming this man. He's just, he refers to him as Mr. So-and-so. And now, now, think about, now think about if you're telling a story. If you're telling a story and you have to refer to somebody, but you don't even give them a name, you just call them Mr. So-and-so in the story, what does that say? It says that this person is really of little consequence to the story. He's, he's insignificant. There's, there's not, this person is not going to be a huge factor in the way the story plays out. And so... I think, I think it's brilliant, actually, on the part of the author in presenting the story in this way because the author is trying to draw a contrast between Boaz and between Mr. So-and-so, who's not even worth naming. And we see in the story why, don't we? Because Mr. So-and-so, when he has this opportunity to redeem this land, initially he says yes. And I mean, and who wouldn't, right? It's, you know, it's, it's clan land, you know, it can, um, it's going to increase his estate. It's going to increase his production capacity. 
It's public, you know, it's going to increase uh, 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 his wealth. You know, why wouldn't he want this land until, until he finds out that it comes with strings? That is that in addition to purchasing the land, also came with it the duty to fulfill, the, the honorable duty to fulfill the care uh, of, for a widow and to perpetuate the name of a deceased clansman. And raise up offspring in his name, which again, as we as we talked about before, was it was a was a high d- duty, and, and it was a great uh, it was a it was a, it was to do a great honor to your to your fallen brother, so that his name and inheritance would not be cut off uh, in Israel. And in fact, so significant was this that in the book of Deuteronomy, it's commanded that um, that you know a man's brother would do this. And if the brother refused to fulfill uh, his duty to, to, uh, to carry forth the name of his brother by marrying the widow, then the widow actually uh, had, the right, he had the right to take his sandal and to spit in his face in public. And that it would be public shaming upon a man who refused to perpetuate his brother's name. Because you got to remember... You know, in the Old Testament, you know, I believe it, it's, it's pointers, it's types and shadows of our, the reality that we have in Christ. But in their view, right, to, the way that one lived on was through your family and through your family name. And so basically to have your name cut off, that, that is to have no offspring carrying on the family name, is basically to be condemned to, I mean, to be condemned to hell or to be condemned to, to, for, to be forgotten, to be cut off, to lose your inheritance among the people of God, right? That's why it was such a devastating thing. And so for someone to fulfill this honorable duty was huge because it, that's why they called it redemption, because you're redeeming, you're buying back your fallen brother so that he can, so that his, the, the family of your brother can continue to live on and continue to have an inheritance in God's land. And so this was no small deal. But when this clansman, when this Mr. So-and-so hears about that, that comes with the package. But that also comes with some costs, right? Because it, it could impair his own. It could impair his own inheritance. And when faced with that, he do, he doesn't have what it takes. He's not willing. Not when it's going to cost him. I'm not going to do it, he says. And. In, in view of all of this, and, and I think that's why the author of this book doesn't even name them. Why? Because I, I really, you know, it almost might be this. It could be the author's thinking, he's not, I'm not even going to write down his name because he's not even worth being remembered. And we, so we see here the importance of a name. And by the way, this thread runs, out, runs through the whole Bible. In fact, consider Jesus' shocking words. Jesus said, not, not everyone who calls me Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And then Jesus goes on to say that those who don't do his will, he will say to them, depart from me, I never knew you. What does it mean? Jesus doesn't know your name. You're unknown. You're forgotten. You have no name before God, no inheritance. That's why names are so important in the Bible. It means being remembered, being remembered before God. It's, it's the way that our life extends beyond life. 
And I believe it points to greater realities in Jesus Christ. And so, what's, and so I think we can learn a lot from Mr. So-and-so. This guy was probably a well-respected citizen of the community. This guy probably had a decent-sized estate. He probably, you know, probably everybody in town knew him. But in this story, he doesn't even have a name. So the question is this. So the question is, the ultimate question is this. Are we, are we working to build, to build the right name in the right story? You see what I'm saying? A lot of people in this life right now are fighting, working hard to make a name for themselves. People want to be remembered. People want to be famous. People want to be a big deal. People want to be respected and honored and remembered. And there's lots of people in this world working, 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 working so that they can have a great name. And this, this Mr. So-and-so, he probably, you know, probably lots of people knew him in these days. But in, the, in, in, his story, may, in his story, maybe he thought he was successful. In the story that he was telling himself in his mind, he was thinking, well, maybe everything's just fine. But guess what? In God's story... He doesn't even have a name. So my question to you is this. Does God know your name? Do you have a name? Not in the story of this world. Because let me tell you something. This world is going to fade away. Let me tell you. The, the, the most famous people in human history. Unless they bowed the knee to Jesus Christ. They're, they're not going to have any name. No remembrance. No one's going to care about them. A billion years from now. But there are people who loved and served Jesus Christ who nobody knew them on this earth and they're going to be the most famous people in eternity. Because God remembered their name. God's, God uh, saw their name. They, they built a name in God's story and God's going to make sure that their name is remembered. So where are, where are we working to build our name in our story or in God's story? See, contrary to Mr. So-and-so, Boaz stands up before these witnesses. And he says, when, when Mr. So-and-so declines, he stands up and he tells his witnesses, "You are verse 9, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilion and Malon. Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife. To perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. And then, and then uh, the people, um, the people stand up, and, and you know, you can all, and, I mean, in the story, you can almost see the excitement. You know, Mister Mister So and So, forget this guy. Just let's write. You know, he he's written off the story, but they they knew it was coming. Boaz stand, and Boaz stands up and says. I claim the right of redemption. I will redeem. And you can almost see in your mind's eye the people, the witnesses rise and say, blessed are you, brother. We are witnesses this day of what you have done. We have seen that you are redeeming your brother and perpetuating the name and his inheritance. And in so doing, what they do is they bless Boaz. They bless him for his redemption. And they lavish blessing upon him by saying uh, there in verse um, 
uh, 11, he says, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephratha and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. So they bless him and they bless Ruth. And they bless Ruth, of course, because... At the, you know, at this point, Ruth and Boaz go together, and for and for Ruth to produce offspring for Boaz is is, is a blessing to Boaz too. So together they're build, they're building up this family. Together they are carrying forward the bloodline. They're carrying forward the name. And what's what's astounding here is they they call upon Ruth. I mean, they, they they're telling they're they're basically praying. They're they're blessing. Uh, imploring God that God would make Ruth like Rachel and Leah. Which, by the way, is astounding because Rachel and Leah are the matriarchs of Israel. They are Jacob, they were Jacob's two wives apart from his, uh, his the, the, their, their servants. And so his, legit, his, two, his two wives. And, uh, and, and, but they're pronouncing this blessing upon Ruth, a Moabite, a Gentile. Right, someone who in Deuteronomy it says they're not even supposed to enter the assembly of the Lord, and yet they're pronouncing upon her the blessing of the matriarchs of Israel. And so, and so, what we see here is a redeeming man. We see a man who steps into this situation, and uh, despite of this other man who does, who who wouldn't do what is right, Mister So and So Boaz steps in and says, "I'll redeem." I'll, I'll, I'll step in. I'll make it happen. A redeeming man. So that's the first redeemer that we see in this story. And the second redeemer that we see in number two here is a redeeming mother and son. A redeeming mother and son. We see this in verses 14 through 17. It says, Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife and he went into her and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a Redeemer, that his, that, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and, and became his nurse. Uh, and became his nurse. So, we see another aspect, another layer of this redemption. Boaz redeems Ruth, but we see here, interestingly, that the that there are more redeemers because here, especially in verse fourteen, the women are talking to Naomi and they say, "Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer." And then they say, "And may His name be renowned in Israel, and He shall be to you a restorer of life." And a nourisher of your old age, uh, for your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more than you seven, son, has given birth to him. So who's the redeemer that they're talking about? The child. The child is another redeemer. The child is a redeemer of Naomi because the child is a symbol of hope. Because the son, remember, in, because of Leverite marriage and the, the redemption that Boaz is doing, the son, that, that firstborn son, is not counted as Boaz's son, but as, uh, I, believe, I believe, as Malon's son. And so that child is counted as of the line of Elimelech, of Naomi's husband. 
And so that child is a symbol of hope that the bloodline of her husband and her family continues on. That, that, that child is a redeemer and God has given him to her. That, that this child will secure, uh, will secure her, her care and her uh, provision in the future because he is, he is of, her, of her bloodline, counted as, of God as her bloodline. And so this child is redemption from God. He, he's the preservation of the family name. He is the way that that, that that family line's name will not be cut off, but will live, if you will, beyond the grave. And not only is this child a redeemer, but as we said before, Ruth is really presented as a redeemer as well. Look at the praise heaped upon Ruth. She says um, uh, that she was, um, she is, who is more to you than seven sons. <laughs> She's more to you than seven sons. Ruth, in this story, shows more... St- I mean, so you got to remember, this story is happening during the time of Judges. It's dark days in Israel. And in some of Israel's darkest days, you have a Moabite woman who shows more love to her mother-in-law than we see any other act of love or faithfulness in this entire time period. In the history of Israel. It's amazing. That here we have a Gentile Moabite young woman. Showing more steadfast love. Than any Israelite. At this time. And so Ruth. You know she could have stayed back in Moab with Orpah. And, 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 that, and that would have been fine. And actually would have made perfect sense. That's where she's from. That's where her family's from. There was real no expectation. That their situation could have got better. By them coming back to Judah, but Ruth loved her and clung to her and stayed by her side. And because Ruth did that, God raised up redemption through Boaz. And so through, and so through Ruth and Boaz together, Naomi and that family is redeemed. It's redeemed. So I don't think we can miss the beauty of this. She brings redemption to the whole family. And, and I believe that in the full scope of Scripture... That this is no, that this isn't an accident. Remember, I mean, so this story is in the Bible. It's in the Old Testament scriptures. Ancient Jews would read this story about the history, and not just that, by the way, but as we as we read, that she's part of the bloodline of King David. So she's not just some crazy anonymous random person. She's part of the bloodline of King David himself. And yet here we have a Gentile showing some of the greatest acts of faithfulness in all the Bible. And so, what it, so certainly what that has to do for uh, an Israelite reading this story, is, and it's what God, I believe, in, is intending to say, and that is that God has a plan for the Gentiles too. God has a plan for those outside of the nation of Israel. And if you need an example, here's one right here, Ruth the Moabitess, part of the bloodline of the king. And that he can use, just like he used Ruth to be part of his redeeming work, God can use us. God can use us to be part of his redemptive plan in this world. As we love people, I mean, we, we, we typically, you know, we typically don't think loving your mother-in-law as a great act of faith. And yet here it is, steadfast love to one's family member, presented in the Bible as one of the greatest acts of redemption and love in the Bible. 
And so what that tells us then is that our lives matter. And that as we are faithful in our generation to love other people and to point other people to Christ and seek the Lord, that God will use us as redemptive agents in the world as well. And so we see a redeeming man, a redeeming mother and son, and finally a redeeming king. A redeeming king. Uh, we see this in these final verses here, including this genealogy. Uh, we discover that the child born to Ruth and Boaz is called Obed, and Obed's the father of Jesse, and Jesse is the father of David. And then it concludes with a genealogy. And, of course, we have to ask, why in the book with a genealogy? You know, I don't think it's an accident that God just happened to work it out where I'm preaching this around the same time preaching through Matthew and just preach through Matthew's genealogy. And so we already kind of have an idea about what's going on here. Why in the book with a genealogy? Whereas I've said, I believe that the genealogy is actually going to tell us the whole point of the story. And we might, and we probably, and you, honestly, you, re, you really wouldn't understand this until you actually get to the very end of the story to understand what the author's trying to tell us. But that's how stories work. The end brings clarity and resolution to the whole. And so the, the genealogy, I think, is the author's way of saying, of telling us that the story that he just told us is about something much more than this story. Uh, that this uh, that the that the story of Ruth is about so much more than Ruth, and I believe the author has waited to the very end, you know, to to make this clear because he wants us to feel the weight of this. He wants us to feel the effect of 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 this story, and that is that the story that this story in four acts is really just a single tiny scene in the far greater story that's being written. And that's how life works. That's how life works. You know, sometimes our single individual lives just seem so insignificant. And sometimes you wonder, man, is, is what I'm doing making any difference? You know, there's the, the everyday little acts of righteousness when nobody's looking and it feels like nobody sees and nobody knows and you're just trying to day in and day out fear God and do the right thing and serve other people. And just sometimes you wonder, what does this have to do with anything? Is God working anything through this? But that's what the story of Ruth tells us, that this story of Ruth and Boaz is just a tiny, minis- remember, this is a tiny, minuscule little happening that's happened in the middle of some of the darkest days in the history of Israel during the period of Judges, where all these crazy things are going on around them, and yet you just have these two people, Ruth, who, though a Moabite, she takes refuge under the God of Israel, and Boaz, who, though he's a little bit older man, he's a righteous man, and he takes it upon himself to, to be the redeemer of Ruth and of Naomi. And though in the big scheme of things, you would think, well, what's, what's this, this one man's act of righteousness, this one little woman deciding to cling to her mother-in-law, what in the world does that have to do in the whole scope of human history? But let me tell you something. About 3,000, over 3,000 years later, 
we're talking about them. About what one little Israelite did and one little Moabite woman did 3,000 years ago. What does it mean? It means that God uses individual acts of righteousness. You, me, us just being faithful to God. Boaz just doing one, Boaz, all this man did was just do, really just just the basics of what God taught. He took care of some widows and he stepped in to help them in their hour of great need. But guess what? It changed the world. So your act of faithfulness, you're, you're caring for that person that just is, you know, hit hard times. You're caring for that loved one who has no one else to care for him. You're, you're paying for that person's food behind you in the drive-thru. Whatever it is, your, your, your little act of righteousness that no one else knows and that no one else sees, but God knows and but God sees. Let me tell you something. God's working. And you don't know what God's doing. And his plan is bigger than we can imagine. And that's what we see in Ruth and Boaz. What we see from this story is that their story is part of a bigger story. It's the story of David. This author wants us to know that Ruth and Boaz's story is the story of David. And who is David? He is the king of Israel. He is the man after God's own heart. He is the one who would lead the, the nation of Israel and rule in righteousness, who would defeat her enemies and preserve justice in the nation. He would guard and keep God's people and make sure that they would prosper in the worship of him. David, of course, represents the quintessential king of Israel and the one whom we've been talking about. God gave the covenant that his offspring would reign on his throne forever. And so the story of redemption, the story of uh, uh, Boaz and Ruth is the story of redemption. It's the story of preserving a bloodline. And so it's not till we get to the very end of the story that we see the point. And that is that the story of Ruth and Boaz is so much bigger than Ruth and Boaz because it's the story of the bloodline. It's the story of the preservation of Israel. The Mr. Mr. So-and-so, what, he did, what Mr. So-and-so didn't realize, who isn't worthy of a name, didn't realize that his... His neglect of his familial duty to care for those widows was threatening the very bloodline of the king of Israel. So God, in in his place, raised up a redeemer to do what? To make sure that the promised king would come. God purposed through them to bring the offspring of promise, the king of Israel, David himself. And of course, you know that we have to go further than that because we just preached through Matthew and through his genealogy. And in Matthew 1.1, it says, the book of Matthew, the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And then in verse 5, it says, in Jesus' genealogy, it says, and Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. So... What Ruth didn't even know at that time, and what even the author of Ruth didn't even know at that time. See, the author of Ruth was trying to tell us that Ruth's story was bigger than Ruth because it's part of David's story. But what Matthew is trying to tell us is that Ruth's story is bigger than Ruth because Ruth's story is not just part of David's story. It's part of Jesus' story. Ruth's story is part of Jesus' story. And so really, I would say we can't understand the story of Ruth without understanding the story of Jesus because they're the same story.
And so as we close, let's just reflect on this story for a moment. At the beginning of Ruth, if you remember, we were confronted with the reality of sin and death. It says there was a famine in the land. And remember that famine was part of God's judgment for when they broke the covenant. That was one of the judgments that he would bring. And so the picture is that Israel is under judgment for their sin and rebellion because everybody was doing what people do today. Whatever was right in their own eyes. And the death of Elimelech and Malon and Kilion just shows the effects of sin and the, the judgment of sin and, and, and what's going on here. But in the midst of all this brokenness, God brings forth a redeemer to give light and hope and life. And when it seems like all is lost for Naomi, such that she's going to change her name to bitter, God raised up a man of righteousness who stepped in where others failed or refused to step in, and he willingly stepped in and gave himself, taking no rest until redemption was accomplished. And what we see then is that Ruth's story is David's story, Ruth's story is Jesus' story, and Ruth's story is our story. Because we're no different than Ruth. We every day feel the weight of sin, our own sin, the sin of others. And, and we see it's a, sin's effects in our own personal lives, in the lives of our, those whom we love in our relationships. We see the effects of sin in our society, all the brokenness throughout the world. Death, disease, decay, loss, sorrow. We, we're, we're in this same world, the same world that Ruth inhabited, where everyone does what is right in their own eyes. But God has not left us without a Redeemer. God has raised up a man of righteousness who stepped in where others would not, could not, and And he has claimed the right of redemption for himself. And he did not rest until that redemption was accomplished. He is the descendant of Ruth. He is the offspring of David. His is the name that is renowned, not only in Israel, but in the whole world. A redeemer given to us, raised up, born of God. To step in and perform a singular act of redemption. Jesus Christ, who redeemed not just a widow, not just a family. He redeemed the whole world in the sacrifice of himself. God has not left us without a redeemer. He has given us a king, a king who is unlike the kings of the earth. A king who seeks not his own will, but the will of him who sent him. A king whose kingdom is not of this world. A king who doesn't demand that his citizens serve him, but a king who laid down his life for his citizens. A king who came to redeem his people, to redeem the world so that we might live before him forever. So that our name might not be forgotten. So that our name might not be cut off. But so that we might stand before our redeemer one day and him not say, I never knew you. But for him to look us in the eye and say, my child, welcome home. Ruth's story is our story. It's Jesus' story. It's the story of the world. And if God can use a widowed Moabite 
and a farmer from Bethlehem. He can use you to be part of this unbelievable story that he's writing. And who knows, who knows, but what your righteousness, your fear of God, your faithfulness to the Lord in loving others and serving others, who knows what kind of story it'll be a part of when it's all said and done. Whatever it is, we know this, it'll be part of Jesus's story. And it's the only story that matters. And so as we close tonight, just invite one more time. Is your name remembered before God? When you stand before Jesus, will he know you? If not, tonight, that can change. If you turn from your sin, bow the knee to King Jesus, willingly surrender all that you are to all that he is, he's more than happy to redeem, to welcome you into his family, and to work through your life this great story of redemption. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this story.